Welcome to Foundation Christian Church. We're glad that you're joining us for today's message. For service times or to join a disciple group, please visit foundationcitrusheights.com. Not asking Glenn to pass out Bibles this week because we're doing topical preaching the next three weeks and we're going to be in so many different verses that I went ahead and just put them on the screen, okay? If you want a text, Luke 16 that's in your sermon notes would be considered closest to the, the main text that I could give you. Um, but um, anyway, so let's uh, briefly mention giving. Uh, we're a tiny smidge behind on giving for June. So if perchance you're a regular giver and you just forgot to give, this is your friendly end of the month reminder. Maybe you could make up the difference and we'll be ending the month strong to start July. Great. So thank you for that. Let's... Uh, dive in. So way back, again in my Simpson days, so I took this class on preaching, Dr. Brown, who's amazing, and he said some things, he repeated them so often, there's no way they weren't seared into the minds of his students. One thing that he said over and over again, he said, you guys are going to spend the rest of your lives doing two things. You're going to preach the gospel, and you are going to preach against every false gospel. How many of you non-preachers have seen that to be true in your own life? Like, <laughs> the world is not just a place where you tell people, hey, Jesus died to wash away your sins. We have to deal with all of the false narratives that people choose to believe of ways that they're going to find their own form of salvation. We've got to do deconstruction. And based on Jesus' own teachings in Scripture, one of the biggest competitions for your heart and for mine apparently is money. Anybody notice how much Jesus talks about money? Anybody notice the Pharisees aren't thrilled that he keeps talking about money? So we're going to do uh, three weeks on money starting today, this series called Standout Finances. Today we're talking about standout desires because when Jesus talks about money, he always talks about the human heart, which is confusing at first. You're thinking, well, Jesus, aren't you going to teach me how to run a spreadsheet? Aren't you going to teach me how much I should save and invest? And Jesus, aren't you going to teach me how to download my Dave Ramsey app to work on my... No? He's always talking about the heart. So, introduce yourself to some people around you and talk this one out for just a minute. In Knowing that the heart is going to be where we're going today, in what ways do the financial practices of Christians stand out from cultural norms? Your behavior as you love Jesus, if you're a guest, your opinion of Christians' financial behavior. When Christians handle money, in what ways does that stand out? Go ahead and introduce yourself to a couple folks and talk that one through.
All right. Who would like to shout out some of the more insightful answers from your group? How do Christians' financial behavior stand out? Generosity. Discipline. What? Ooh, primacy. Bible calls that first fruits. What else? Tithing. Ooh, what you don't purchase. I just added a fourth sermon to this three-week sermon series. <laughs> You're a Christian now. Here are 12 things you should probably never buy. <laughs> what else makes Christians' finances stand out? Knowing who your provider is. Amen. What else? Not shopping. Oh, boycotting Target. I, yeah, that's a philosophy thing, not a theology one. What else? What? Focused on the mission of God. Which, let me say what, what you're not saying. I could just be focused on my comfort. My comfort could be the total pursuit, right, of my finances. If I am think, seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, all these other things will be added. I feel like somebody said that somewhere, right? <laughs> what else? Yeah, ownership. Goodness gracious. If you're clinging tightly to your stuff, God's claims of ownership are a threat, aren't they? Okay, but if you trust him, right? Less worry. Less worry. I think those go together. If my resources aren't mine, if God's on his throne, less worry. Anything else? All right. Grab your pens. Here's your first blank. Loving God stands out in a world dominated by the love of money. Loving God stands out. Look at Jesus' words. No one can serve two masters because you will hate one and love the other. You'll be devoted to one. I should break it down for you. A lot of times, biblically, when the word hate is used, it'd probably be better to understand the word as a total rejection. It's not that you have bad feelings about it, you're just rejecting it, you won't serve it. You hate one and love the other. You'll be devoted to one, you'll despise the other. You cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. The Pharisees, these are the Bible types in the, in the first century, who dearly loved their money. So Luke is telling us, as the historian who, who carefully went around and talked to everybody who was with Jesus, who followed Jesus, who was around and wrote this down, he's saying to the reader, this group was known for memorizing Bible verses, but I'm telling you, they loved their money and their status and their power in the culture. They loved their money. They heard all this and scoffed at God. Guys, is it good when religious folks are laughing at what God says? Is that a good day? That's not a good day. Then Jesus said to them, you like to appear righteous in public, but God knows your hearts. What this world honors is detestable in the sight of God. 
Jesus couldn't have been more clear. You are going to love God or you're going to love money so long as you are human. Human. If you're a human being, check your species, you're going to do one of these two things. In an industrialized country with more wealth than we think we have, what is easier to do? Love God or love money? This flies in the face of the way the culture talks. Today, the culture talks about, well, there are religious people and there are people who like believe in science or there are people who kind of feel out their spirituality, you know, rocks and crystals and being in the mountains and, and everybody's way. Yeah, that's sure, that's fine with you. Those are kind of the, some of the narratives of the culture. Jesus comes in and says, if you do not love my father, the true God, the God of the Bible, you love money. Offensive much? I don't know that this should actually shock us because you see, money, when it, money is what helps me to feel like I'm in control. Money is the locus of decision making. If it's my money and it's in my hands, I'm actually God. I'm God. I don't have to trust anything or anyone else. So don't, let's not act like money is in and of itself dirty. It's a medium of exchange where people, through which people make decisions. I just want to make all the decisions. I want to be God. That's what my flesh wants. I want my calendar to be mine. I want my sexuality to be mine. I want my definitions of terms to be mine. I just want to be God. That's all I ask. Is that so hard? And Jesus loves us enough to tell us what's true about money. Hey, you want to know where your heart is? Check your money. It's a diagnostic tool. I shared months ago, I want to repeat this image, burn it into our brains. Seth Godin, a marketing guru, wrote a book called The Purple Cow. His argument was that if a farmer for some reason wanted to demand your attention, you're going to be driving down this little two-lane highway, enjoying the sunny day, if, if you only saw regular cows on both sides of the road, your brain instinctively, nothing demands your attention because the cow looks like it's supposed to look. The grass looks like it's supposed to look. The sky looks like it's supposed to look. And you're going to devote your attention, Lord willing, to the road or whatever music you're listening to or conversation you're having with other people in the car. You see, but he says, a can of purple paint isn't actually that expensive. This is his argument. Paint is not that expensive. Painting the cow is not hard. And the milk is not changed in any way by putting some purple paint on the cow. Now his lesson that he's trying to get across is for the business world that, hey, you've got to stand out or you're going to die. But what if, just theoretically, what if I told you that the voice of God from Sinai until now has told his people over and over and over again that they are to stand out, that they are to be peculiar, that they are to be an oddity, they are supposed to turn heads, and he uses this word all the time, holy. 
We, we use holy as a synonym for sacred, and that's an appropriate term, but it also means that it's completely other. It's totally different. God has said to his people, your sexuality is supposed to be so different, nobody has no idea what to do with it. That your relationships with your coworkers should be so different, everybody's heads turn. That your relationship with your spouse, if you have one, should be so different, everybody's going, what is going on here? And we would say the same thing about Christian finance. Um, forgive me for not citing my sources. I don't recall who the letter was from and to. But it was in the late second century, one Roman official in Asia Minor was writing a letter to another official back in Rome talking about this group, growing group of rel religious sect of Judaism called Christians. And amongst history nerds like me, this quote is famous. He said about the Christians, and, and in the culture there, in, in the Roman culture, this tiny group of Christians, and he said, we Romans are, uh, what's the, not fast and loose, promiscuous, there we go. We Romans are promiscuous with our bodies, and we are stingy with our money. These Christians are stingy with their bodies, and they are promiscuous with their money. And what he meant is they were generous. We Romans will give our body to anybody. That's our sexual ethic. These Christians will serve and be generous to anybody. And their sexual ethic is opposite of ours. What he was saying is, these folks stand out. This demands attention. Let me ask the question you already know the answer to. Why would God want his people to stand out? That's right. Ezekiel 36 and all throughout the rest of the Bible. The only thing that a loving God could do when he is the source of life is to reveal his love to the nations that people would come to him and receive life. It is the only loving thing he could do. And he's chosen to use people like you and me. Here's your next step. If you love Jesus, devote yourself to rhythms that help you love God. A financial issue isn't actually a financial issue. Deep down, it is a love God issue. And we are not going to, as the illustration goes, we're not going to eat an elephant all at once. It's done one bite at a time. So I want you to consider, man, do I have a Bible reading plan? It doesn't have to necessarily be written out. Do I have an approach to listen to the voice of my father just a little bit every day? Am I going to pull out the Bible app and have it read to me during my commute? I'm going to pull out my paper Bible because I've got some time. I'm going to carefully, I'm, I'm personally, I'm doing the Psalms right now. Like, what is your plan? Is your plan a book? Is your plan you're studying a topic? Hey, you could do this if you've got a good study Bible. I want to see what God thinks about peace as a concept. I'm going to look up every Bible verse that talks about peace until I understand what God, it doesn't matter what the approach is as long as you're listening to your father. Maybe your disciple group, you have a, 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 an approach together that you talk about when you meet of here's how we get into the word. A rhythm that shows you the affections of your father, the, fact, the, the character of your father, that is going to help you love Jesus, is to spend time with him, right? Here's another rhythm. Do you have a strategy for prayer? I want to commend to you that praying for your meal is a great thing, but it should never be rote. It should be a strategy. 
To thank the Lord for your meal is a strategy to engender gratitude in your heart. And if you've got children at the table, to teach them that God is the provider. That's a strategy. That should never be religious obligation. God doesn't love you more because you prayed for your meal. Amen? Okay? What rhythms? This is Deuteronomy 6 language. What little ways do you have scripture literally or proverbially written on your home so that you're interacting with the God you love? repeatedly in small ways throughout the day. Because day by day habits, these are what are gonna build momentum to build a holy and conspicuous and stand out life. You see how this point that I'm making here, this could be fit into a sermon on any form of godliness. This wouldn't be devoted only to money, would it? See, our finances are just an indicative. In, in my, nobody ever wants to become a cancer, cancer expert, but man, the stuff I've had to read and learn the last six months, the amount of things in, uh, not just American, but really the whole world over, the amount of things in medicine that are really bad or good, the cumulative effect of lots of behaviors, right? We don't say... Um, well, actually, we do. We do. I need to lose 60 pounds. Will somebody say, here's a magical pill, and tomorrow you're going to look great, right? Would that pill sell if, if you woke up tomorrow and you loved the way you look, you looked, you know, ripped abs and all? Yeah, somebody would pay money for that, obscene amounts of money, okay? But what we know is a, a long string of behavior got me into the health that I'm in. A long string of behavior might change that, Right? And it's, it's more complicated than that. But we know that these things don't happen overnight. You're not going to have the evangelistic life that you want overnight. Probably. Maybe. If it happens, tell us and we'll praise God with you. Right? I got courage. I prayed for boldness. The next day I told five co-workers about Jesus. Wow. If that happens, tell us. Right? Second, grab your pens. Loving money is so common, we can't usually see it. This is a cultural statement as much as a biblical one. Look at 1 Timothy 6. Paul is not mincing his words. But people who long to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many foolish and harmful desire. How many offensive words can he use? The subject, people who long to be rich. In our culture, that is admirable. That young man is driven. She wants to be successful. She's plowing her way through business college and she's gonna take over the world. It's gonna be amazing. People who long to be rich, and by the way, being successful in business doesn't mean that money has your heart, okay? They fall into temptation. Now we're talking, this is sin language, isn't it? And they are trapped by many foolish, as opposed to wisdom, harmful, as opposed to helpful and healing, desires. You're trapped by desires. Again, we've got to deconstruct this. Our culture says that our desires are inherently valid, and Jesus says, you're joking, right? I want it, so it must be awesome. Okay, yeah, yeah, put away your 1990s Disney movie. Your desires are not inherently good, valid, and helpful. You could actually ruin your life doing that. 
Anybody here, let's be real honest, in a temporary moment of rage, if you had no uh, reservations whatsoever at all, you would probably be a murderer. Right? We are not murderers because by God's mercy, he has put so many things in the human brain, aware of the implications, I don't want to go to jail, what, I don't look good in orange, what, whatever your reasons are, you did not kill the person. And he's saying your desires are what you're trapped in. They plunge you into ruin. They plunge you into destruction. All of this, why? Because you long to be rich. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And some people craving money, they've wandered from the true faith. They've pierced themselves with many sorrows. And just to be clear, again, Paul didn't say money ruined your life. He said loving money ruined your life. Right? You could apply this to anything. Your job didn't ruin your life. You worshipped your job and forsook your family and your life blew up. Your job wasn't a bad thing. You just took a good thing, you made it a God thing, and it all blew up. Food is a good thing. You don't say, oh, people sin all the time with food, so I'm going to fast. When? Until the Lord brings me home. Like, no, you don't reject food, you redeem it. I'm going to put food back in its place. See, I took a good thing and I made it a God thing and my life blew up. So, I'm going to show you a picture here on the next slide and I want you to look very carefully for a worshiper of money. You ready? Who's the worshiper of money? Oh, dang it, it's everywhere. Right? It's everywhere. And I'm saying this not to bemoan the culture. I'm saying this to encourage you. If you love Jesus, brothers and sisters, finances are an incredible opportunity to stand out. They're an incredible chance to be promiscuous with our money instead of stingy with our money, to bless others as opposed to just constantly pursuing my own approach toward happiness. Third blank. Now we're gonna get real practical. A lack of contentment is the most probable indicator that my heart loves money. If I'm asking the question, does my heart love money? The biggest indicator by a mile is, do I have a severe lack of contentment? Chronic lack of contentment? Let's see what the writer of Hebrews says. Very briefly, without stuttering, don't love money, be satisfied with what you have. For God has said, I will never fail you, I will never abandon you. So you see how the presence of God is supposed to be the foundation of where our trust, right? What, do we, what is the foundation of resources? Well, for the Christian, I trust God to protect and provide. But listen, he puts those, I really wanted to focus you on, on these first two phrases because they're juxtaposition on purpose. Don't love money, be satisfied with what you have. Those aren't the same. Don't love money. Be satisfied with what you have. Well, what does lack of contentment look like, Greg? Because I'm really curious. I'm glad you asked. Three of these are blanks for you note takers to fill in. 
And there are probably more. So go ahead and start your writing. Workaholism, comparison, complaining, uh, retail therapy, borrowing. Workaholism sounds like this. I want things more than I want a balanced life. And don't do this in your brain right now. Your brain just thought of the person, somebody else besides you, that they want stuff more than they want balance, and so they don't take weekends, and they work too you know, long, and blah, blah, you know. No, 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 just look inside yourself. Comparison. There's always somebody else who I define as rich. And because I always have somebody else who I think of as rich. There's always a slightly nicer car. There's always a slightly better neighborhood. There's always a slightly better 401k. Always. So I don't know the data anymore, but the Forbes 500 list, the 500 richest people in America, uh, somebody pointed out, to me at one point, the guy at the very bottom of the, by the way, let's just be honest for a second. Would you like to be at the very bottom of the Forbes 500 list? That's some serious cash. Yes, okay, praise the Lord, right? The guy at the bottom of the Forbes 500 list, are you ready for this? Had 10,000 times less wealth than the person at the top of the list. 10,000 X. That's crazy. That's like you're living under a bridge and you have a dollar over and against somebody has $10,000, but you put on the same list. There's always somebody richer. That's my point, okay? When I'm playing the comparison game and I think you're rich, then here's what disastrous thing happens inside the church. I call myself a Christian and I read my Bible and every time the Bible gives a warning to the greedy, I go, oh, this is for them. How on earth will I take the warnings to the greedy to, my, to heart? How am I going to take those warnings to heart? That's for you. I've already decided your car is better than mine, so therefore, I'll walk <laughs> to next door to my neighbor who's got a better car than me and share this verse about greed. That's kind of what we're doing inside our hearts because there's no way greed applies to me. There's no way I love money because somebody else... Actually, I, I, you could be broke and your life be obsessed with money, couldn't you? Yeah, so let's not play that game. You could be greedy with a lot, you could be greedy with a little. One of the proverb writers said, Lord, give me just enough. If you give me too little, I might be tempted to steal. And if I, you give me too much, I, I won't even praise your name any longer. I won't depend on you, I'll just do things on my own. He saw the, the, the uh, danger that could go in both directions. God, give, just give. And then Jesus later said it the exact same way. Lord, give us today our daily bread. Ah, oh, if you give me enough. It's not in the sermon today. Godliness with contentment is itself great wealth. The great wealth we need is contentment, not more money. Complaining sounds like this. Why does she get that house? Why does she get that car? Why does she get that hunk of a man? Barbie has everything. Complaining really is an accusation of injustice against God. At its core, God, you did something morally wrong. 
there's something in my circumstances that should not be this way. You did it wrong. Retail therapy. I buy things I don't truly need. Who here, whether you were raising kids 40 years ago, you're raising kids now, you've got nieces and nephews, you have heard children conspicuously use the word need for like a candy bar. Everybody, right? There is an age at which we're just so young, we don't really know the difference between the word want and need. But what would happen if an entire very wealthy culture of 300 million people grew up not knowing the difference between wants and needs? What would happen? Just possibly, right? Is that going to go well for the poor? We have nations that do not have the resources. They don't have a dam to control their river. They have two or three guerrilla groups at the outside of the capital where they're always just like, can we even control our country militarily? And you and I think it's a political discussion when they have a famine. Or how much support do they want the State Department to get? Like, it's politics for us. Why? Because I'm not hungry. When you're hungry, it's not politics anymore, is it? Borrowing. I buy things I can't truly afford. Retail therapy, I buy things I don't truly need. Borrowing, I buy things I can't truly afford. Here's an important gut question for all of us. If I don't have the cash on hand right now to buy it, has God really provided it for me? Now, I know that what I'm saying right now is super purple cow. Our entire economy is built off of borrowing. The government borrows. We buy houses through borrowing, buy cars through borrowing. Uh, some of the interest rates for a while there were so good. Like, hey, <laughs> like, who needs to do the Dave Ramsey thing and save up for a car? You know, the 3%. Praise the Lord, right? Now the rates aren't as good. And it is worth asking. There's no Bible verse that's going to tell you yes or no on this. This is going to require wisdom. If I don't have the money for it, has God really provided it? Okay? We get into a lot of trouble by simply not asking the question, and that's why I want to put the question forward. Sometimes you're going to say, this needs to happen this way. Sometimes you're going to say, you know what? Maybe we hold off. Maybe we try a different approach. Maybe if we go three model years older and another 50,000 miles, maybe we could pay cash, or maybe we could at least borrow less. Like, again, there's no Bible verse that says exactly how to approach these things. But the Bible does have lots of negative things to say about how debt affects our relationships. We'll talk about debt more next week. It's, no one's going to say that debt is a sin. The Bible doesn't say it. It does say bad things can happen. Is that fair? Okay. Uh, your swimming pool in your backyard that does not have a fence around it, no one's going to say your swimming pool is bad, but there's no fence and you've got children. Okay? So when your 21-year-old college student goes, gets their first credit card, it's like... Mm. Right? There should be a healthy fear. There should be a healthy fear. And then there's... Uh, oh, next step. So here's what I want to ask you to do with your notes. I'm, gonna give you, I'm going long, but I'm going to give you just 30 seconds. Of that list, workaholism, comparison, complaining, retail therapy, borrowing, maybe there's something you thought of that I didn't think of, you added. Would you circle the two of them that just ping your heart and you're like, oh, and the spirit kind of 
choked you out. Yeah, that's you. That's it. That, you got to work on that. Take a moment and circle two things that you know you need to surrender to Christ. And I would encourage you to talk with your disciple group about them this week. Talk with a friend. James says, confess sin for the sake of healing. This may or may not be sinful for you. Maybe it's just a wisdom issue. Circle the two in your notes that resonate with you the most for yourself. Not for your spouse if you're married. Don't do that. Let the Holy Spirit work on your spouse. Go ahead and take a moment to circle them. And then, because I didn't want to end on a down note of here are all the ways you're all idolaters, um, I put together this fun list. It's not in your notes. It's not on the screen. This is just verbal. I want to lift up your soul, okay? Because there are so much scripture that shows clearly this is how a Christian knows that they've got standout desires, purple cow desires. Are you ready? How do I know whether or not I've got standout desires? I gladly submit to God as my master, Matthew 6, 24. I keep God as my highest love, 1 Timothy 6, 10. I trust God as my provider, Genesis 22, 14. I have God as my hope, Psalm 18, verses 1 and 2. I desire God as my treasure, Matthew 6, 19 through 21. I receive God as my inheritance, Psalm 16, verses 5 and 6. And I choose an attitude of contentment, Proverbs 21, verse 17. There are indicators that make it really clear. Some of you, we all have to have the humility to ask, am I a lover of money? But some of you, I can tell, because I've been with you for five years, you're not. Congratulations, awesome. That doesn't mean that we don't stay vigilant, amen? Anybody here had a sin creep into their life and like, I didn't struggle with this five years ago, why am I struggling with this? Dag nab, but I'm the only one. Okay. Sin is always crouching at the door. It just is, okay? And this week, having desires that stand out, this is going to be a launch pad into the next two discussions. We're gonna talk about standout consumption, buying, borrowing, what do we need, uh, and the ways that this, frankly, man, I'm excited about next week. I can't wait for next week. Uh, we are going to find out so many ways that money is going to give us gospel pathways to our neighbors and our friends and our coworkers. It's going to be really, really good. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we, uh, we, we do not hang out to hear a pep talk, Lord. We are here to be transformed by your word. And so, God, we ask that from these various texts we've looked at, would you please change our hearts? God, some of us are in a fight against sin and we think that we're supposed to turn and face that sin when in reality we need to turn and face Jesus. Would you help us to love you more than anything in the whole world so that the things of earth would grow strangely dim in the light of your glory and grace? God, make worshipers out of us. 
Give us courage and humility as we approach more texts the next couple weeks. Make us a family where money has been so removed from the throne of our heart, we're not making it God anymore, that it can now be a powerful tool to stand out, demand attention, and say, let me tell you about my Jesus. God, take us there by your Holy Spirit's filling and your Holy Spirit's empowerment. In the great name of Jesus, foundation prayed. God's people said, amen. You guys have a great week. Love you.